you know, uh, love your enemies. You know, it was said to you an eye for an eye, but I say to you, I mean, there's not many things that people agree that Jesus was very explicit about, but these are the things that most people agree. And so I would say the burden of proof is on somebody who wants to contravene those very clear sayings of Jesus, um, that they have an incredible burden of proof. And, and I think that in today's modern context, very hard to meet that proof, um, especially considering wars are carried out not by theocracies in general, but by secular states who have interests that are very often diametrically opposed to the interests of the church. We're talking religion and politics on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of the partisan evangelical church and asking the question, is God really a conservative Republican? And does God require his followers to be? What knucklehead, mush for brains, evangelical leaders are trying to overthrow Trump. It's a special kind of dumb in calling yourself a Christian. Podcasting worldwide on the NPE network at npepodcast.com. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. We're not electing a pastor-in-chief. We're electing a commander-in-chief. With the Nonpartisan Evangelical himself, Paul Swearingen. Okay, welcome to the podcast today. I am Paul Swearingen, nonpartisan evangelical with you, and I'm excited for the guest we have today. Uh, Kevin Miller joins us from up in British Columbia, and he's the maker of a film that I think is is really thought-provoking, and I highly recommend it to you. It's, it's what do I call it, Kevin? Is it Jesus USA <laughs> Film? No, we just call it JS USA. Okay, JS USA, and and so I guess we can kind of figure what the film is about because you're kind of mashing Jesus and USA together there. Yeah, I always think that you know the title of a film should should kind of be the film in a nutshell, and and that's really you know this is a film that looks at patriotism, Christianity, and violence, and uh, this tendency to fuse one's uh, beliefs in God with uh, one's allegiance to the state. And so Jesus and USA just occurred to me one day in the making of this film that, boy, those two things flow together pretty naturally. So I thought I would do that in the title. And that kind of shows, you know, really the problem that we're trying to trying to solve here is how do we separate those two? So you, you told me you're up in British Columbia. Are you a Canadian? Are you um, American? And, and why Jesus USA? Did you decide to go on this? Yeah, well, I'm Canadian, uh, but, you know, I've been in the film industry for about 16 or 17 years, and most of that time has been spent working on films in America with Americans. And so I feel like so much of my adult life has been spent just really wrestling with a lot of issues that America is wrestling with. And and again, um, this film is looking at, you know, how do you pursue what I believe to be the call of nonviolence within Christianity, within the most powerful military uh, empire the world has ever seen. And so I think that, you know, if you're going to look at the question of Christianity and violence and the problem of, of uh, you know, patriotism, kind of a blind patriotism, America is just a really good context um, to examine it. And, and I think the situation that American Christians find themselves in is no different than Christians in many states have found themselves in in, in the history of, of the faith. Um, so I just think this is just sort of the latest uh, manifestation. Let me play a clip from the movie to give people a feel of, of what it's like. And this is, I think this is probably the most 
and it's in your trailer. This is the, the one that probably gets people the most. So let me just uh, just hit this. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce you to truth? Jesus is not Mother Teresa. He's William Wallace. We have feminized this man. We've turned him into a, an American male who goes to Target and doesn't know which bathroom to use. He was a hellraiser. Started arguments and fights everywhere he went. I would agree with C.S. Lewis, who said, though I can respect an honest pacifist, I believe him to be entirely mistaken. You know, I respect him. You know, just, you know, step aside so I can protect you, though. We're not wrestling against... <laughs> so, uh, so that's the, the Jesus, not Mother Teresa clip. Um, tell me about that guy. And uh, in a conversation you and I were involved in with a group the other night, you... you you treat him well, you know, you don't use him as a sort of an antagonist or for this, uh, this movie necessarily. Well, the person you heard, you heard speaking there is uh, a guy named Jimmy Meeks. He's the founder of something called Sheepdog Seminars. And uh, what Jimmy and, and uh, people who work with him do is they go around to faith-based organizations, schools, uh, nonprofits, and they try and teach them how to protect themselves against an active shooting situation. Also, how to prevent children from being abducted from preschool and that sort of thing. And they have all kinds of stats, which are all accurate about how many acts of violence happen on uh, properties that are owned by faith-based organizations in America every year. So they're trying to cope with a real threat. Uh, and I think in many ways, they're doing a service to people. They don't, they're not, of course, they definitely welcome um, people, you know, uh, qualified people having firearms on prop on the property. But that's not the main emphasis. The main emphasis is how do you you know, kind of handle these types of things and prevent these things from happening. So Jimmy is actually a really good guy. He was a cop in Dallas, Texas for 40 years, never drew his gun. He was also a hostage negotiator. The entire time he was a police officer, he's also a pastor. And he just very much has a shepherd mentality. But um, he also has a very different view of Jesus than uh, some other people. So um, I think we can set aside the comment about uh, how Jesus has been feminized and, and uh, his sexuality is in question. I think it's, it's, it's this comparison between William Wallace, who's a conqueror, um, a fighter, a rebel, and Mother Teresa, who's somebody who, you know, is best known for helping, um, you know, those who have been cast off by society. And I, I think that really helps to encapsulate um you know, the divide that runs down the center of many churches in terms of who is God and who is Jesus and what role, if any, does violence play or should violence play in the life of Christians or the church is, is Jesus William Wallace? Because if he is, then you, you need to pick up your sword and join in this, in this fight for freedom and justice. And it feels like a great honorable thing to do. Or is Jesus Mother Teresa or is he either of those things? Um, Because I, now, I think this is one of the problems people have when they hear the term pacifist, for instance, is they it sounds too much like the word passive. So it's like, oh, you can either go and fight the bad guys, quote unquote, or you can just do nothing and let them mow, mow down all everybody. And that's not at all what we see Jesus doing. We don't see Jesus ever exercise violence in the Bible, but we see him practice very active nonviolent resistance in the face of evil. Um, I think one of the best examples is uh, the woman who's about to be stoned, where Jesus comes in and, and uh, you know, this is the thing that we all do is we tend to scapegoat people. And uh, we pick out somebody in the group who seems to be vulnerable. and We build community around our accusation of them. Jesus sees this going on with this woman. And so he turns the tables and he says, well, wh whoever of you, 
you know, is without sin can cast the, the first stone. So suddenly they go from a moment of projecting evil onto somebody else. They're forced to confront the evil within themselves. And it's a very active, very bold um, moment because he's standing beside somebody. They could have just as easily said, screw that. We're going to stone both of you then. So he put himself in the line of fire um, and uh, he turned the tables. He didn't ever, re- he didn't ever imitate their evil uh, or sorry, their violence. He, he brought them, you know, to an awareness of it. So I think that to me is such a great model of how, you know, Christians are called to practice their faith in the world. It's not passive. It's, it's dangerous. You know, it's putting yourself in the line of fire in the hope, not just of protecting the innocent, but also bringing those who are using violence, um, you know, to, in a sense, calling them out, calling out the, you know, the goodness within them to save them from themselves. Yeah. And I think, and I think you make such a good point. I think a lot of people who would agree with, uh, Jimmy and that are good people and and yes. are working from the best of their heart and love God and 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 we can be Christians and have arguments about these things. Uh the thing that that many things disturb me in those comments but this for one I think Jesus would be thrilled to be compared with Mother Teresa. I I think she was <laughs> extremely brave and powerful and did incredible things. Um but when the outside world hears comments like that I think even the, this idea of feminine bad, you know, men have to be this macho, you know, if Jesus has any of these feminine characteristics at all, that that's a negative. And, uh, and, and he has to be this macho William Wallace guy for us to want to follow him. I think even that is a precept that has sort of snuck into our Christianity. And when the outside world hear, hears us talking like that, they they're a bit reviled by it because, you know, women's rights and understanding that women can be powerful as much as men can is 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 a very cultural thing. And, and so I think we make it difficult to, for people to approach us as purveyors of a representation of God when when we're using speech like that, I guess. Is that fair to say? I think so. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, it's showing, of course, uh, a very non-progressive attitude toward uh, gender identity and sexuality and masculinity and, and all kinds of things. I mean, it's, it's somebody who's rooted in the past and, uh, and, but at the same time, like I said, like you said, um, uh, you know, people like Jimmy, they want to use, they would always see violence as the last resort, something to avoid using if at all possible. And again, I think his record speaks for himself as a police officer um, that he had, he was licensed by the state to use deadly force. And yet he always found a way not to have to do that. Um, I think that's in, impressive, but we tend to use violence more often to protect the things that we love than to go after the things that we hate. And so I think there, there is a sense of, uh, a noble feeling that I'm going to be a protector. I'm going to be a shepherd, you know, so sh- I'm going to be a sheepdog. That's what the whole idea of the sheepdog seminars is, is that there's a, a world full of wolves. And there's a bunch of sheep who can't protect themselves. So now there's these specially called people called sheepdogs who can, they can use violence, but they always use violence for a good reason. And I think this, you know, I'm a big fan of René Girard. Um, he's a French uh, philosopher, the late René Girard. Uh, he's a French philosopher who talked about uh, a lot about violence and about how we tend to imitate each other's violence and use scapegoating to form community and all that sort of thing. But, you know, he, he, he redefines the word myth and, and how he uses the word myth is it's the story that we tell to justify our violence. Mm. 
we, we can always have a good reason for our violence. And one of the best reasons to be violent is to claim a victim narrative. Um, if we've been victimized, suddenly we, in our culture's mind, now occupy the moral high ground. And so um, any violence we use from that point on is completely justified because violence has been used against us. And so we tend to find if we examine any kind of conflict, whether it's violent or not, if it's just a disagreement on Facebook, what we'll often find is competing victim narratives because we're trying to, you know, it's it's a game of trying to occupy the moral high ground. So then we can point at the other person and say, see, they're the problem. It's not me, yeah. you know, yeah. and so I'm just doing what, you know, what, what I should be doing because they're they're doing this terrible thing. And again, this comes back to what is what is the gospel? What is Jesus constantly calling us to? It's it's. It's to an examination of self. We're all masters at externalizing the causes of our problems. You know, addicts represent the most extreme version of this. That's what addicts do, you know, to the nth degree. But I think we're all kind of addicted to blame. And, um, you know, I think Jesus is, is constantly trying to help us break that addiction. Yeah. Well, you're, it, it's such a good point. And when Jesus did protect the women caught in adultery, he didn't violently run run the guys away he just stood in the way of the weapons that they were carrying and and of course we had you know he could have called angels to come and save him and and war against the romans and everybody else and chose not to do that so i think those are great points but so did jimmy under he, i'm sure you had to explain sort of the point of what you were trying to do and how did he feel about being part of that film and have you talked to him has he watched the film since you completed it I'm not aware if Jimmy's watched the film uh, yet. Um, I'm, you know, uh, looking forward to that conversation. Uh, but uh, when I approached him, uh, there's also a guy named Carl Chin uh, who kind of represents a similar point of view. He's also affiliated with Sheepdogs. There's a, a guy named uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman who's uh, very famous for, uh, uh, he's a psychologist. He's taught at West Point. He's a former Army Ranger, um, all that sort of thing. And he spent a lot of time studying um how soldiers are taught to kill and the price that we pay for killing in a professional capacity. It's quite, he's done a lot of really fascinating work. So he represents that point of view in the film that violence is sometimes necessary. And then there's uh, pastor Sean moon. Um, who's uh, he's famous for being the son of, of Reverend Sung young moon. And also for having a church uh, where they, they uh, use firearms uh, as part of some of their rituals, but uh yeah, so they all kind of represent represent that point of view. I haven't sat down and talked to any of them about the film, but I feel, you know, when I when I approached them, the way I approached them was to say, I want to do a film that's looking at these issues, um, and I want to talk to people who really feel that violence is not just um, uh, sort of acceptable, but it's actually, it can be a good thing, as well as those who completely abhor it and think, you know, they, they almost go, so far the other direction um, that nonviolence becomes an end in itself. And so I just told him that that's kind of, I want to talk to people on the whole spectrum, make a film that, that engages those points of view, which I believe the film does. And I was talking to some people who had watched the film last night and, and they were, we were commenting how it's, it almost is like two separate films to some degree. You, you really deal with, the, the people who are a little bit of violence is, is good and would be endorsed for protecting people. And, and even as you said, Pastor Moon saying it's a, it's a spiritual experience to, to do these drills with these automatic weapons and things. And, and you really deal with it, not in a, 
to me in any judgmental way, although there maybe was a little bit of ominous music under that, uh, those comments, but, <laughs> but it seems like you're dealing with them very fairly. And then you turn and, and go into the nonviolence part was, was that sort of an intentional decision to lay the movie out that way? Yeah, I think any good documentary that's dealing with an issue like this, it needs to take a dialectical approach where, you know, you have thesis, antithesis, synthesis. So you don't want to just have the sound of one hand clapping. Like you want to really engage, you know, the some of the strongest uh, arguments against a certain point of view. And, and uh, so I think it's important to have that interplay. So, yeah, I mean, we actually on our first screening had somebody walk out of the film 12 minutes in because they thought we had done a bait and switch and that this is a movie that's like rah, rah. God and guns and because um, the movie does a turn about 13 minutes in where you know we we uh, start to introduce the audience to people who um, take a different point of view so what I wanted to do with the film was begin with some people who really feel you know strongly convinced from the Bible that there is basically one and only one way of looking at this and then what I counter that with is people who tell I have four guys who tell the story of how they were converted away from violence, two of whom uh, were soldiers. One is a Navy SEAL. The other was a Marine. Both were in combat. And then we also have Chris Hedges, who um, who is not a, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning war correspondent. He's not a pacifist per se, but he definitely feels that war, every war should be viewed with great suspicion, um, you know, due to his insider's view of things. So I, I wanted to counter sort of a hard and fast theology with, the experience of people's conversion stories. I think, cause I think that's very hard to argue with um, people who, you know, to argue with their story. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to bring sort of a theological argument against that because they're, they're talking about how they were converted. And, and I think it's emotionally powerful. And, and then we kind of proceed into that. And, and, and the thing is, if you're studying something like violence, you know, of course you can't study it in isolation because, you know, it, it deals with, all kinds of things in terms of, of course, citizenship um, and then theological ideas about really who is God. And as we talked about, who is Jesus? And then we get to the atonement. The atonement was was an act of violence. What on earth is that all about? How does that play into things? And, and um, you know, what part of that was God? What part of that was human? And and so we, we delve into all those kinds of areas. That's interesting. Let me let me bring in Brian Zahn is one of the guys you use. He's somebody that I like an awful lot. Uh, this is him talking a little bit about that mind conversion uh, when it comes to war. Just two hours ago, Allied Air Forces began an attack on military targets in Iraq and Kuwait. I was very excited. I mean, America is getting ready to go to war. And I had the radio on in my study, and I was kind of, I was, you know, paying attention all day long, and I couldn't wait to get home because though the internet really isn't up and running yet, we now have cable news. And so I rushed home, ordered pizza, had a couple of friends over, uh, learned that America's pastor had prayed with America's president and assured him that all of this was in keeping with God's divine purposes. And I watched a war on TV. I was entertained. America won. A lot of people were killed, hundreds of thousands, uh, but like, like the video games and like the westerns, we didn't see that, and so that wasn't real. I didn't think about that again. That was just a, a, a one night of my life, and I didn't think about it for 
from between 1991 and I think it was 2004, I was praying one day. I'm sitting, acknowledging the presence of Christ, sitting quietly, and without any anticipation, without any really logical sequence, that episode from that night, it was replayed as an incriminating surveillance video. I saw myself laughing and joking and eating pizza with my friends, watching a war as if it were nothing but entertainment. But I sensed Jesus say to me, that was your worst sin. And I wept bitterly. So that's Brian Zahn's uh, conversion experience from being somebody enjoying watching war on TV because we win and to him saying it's his, his worst sin of his life. So that's a, that's a huge statement. Yeah. I mean, it was a profound turn of heart for him and if or change of heart for him. And if you, you know, kind of know anything about Brian Zahn before that and after, I mean, it's, uh, you know, the old Brian Zahn is hardly recognizable. And, you know, it's funny. I think a lot of people um, who, you know, are in Brian's camp can probably tell a similar story. Like I, I remember during that golf, the first Gulf War, I, I was buying Gulf War trading cards. I mean, I had, you know, like the Saddam Hussein card and, uh, you know, the George Bush <laughs> card and everything. I mean, I was just like everyone else kind of caught up in in just the sense of righteousness. But even then, you know, I remember I was about 19 years of age, just kind of having a bit of a cynical take on the war that I felt America, it was a war of opportunity and that it was a war of positioning. And it was not, you know, the good guys versus the bad guys. Um, you know, it's, and that's part of the problem is I think, um, you know, we, we, even if you're committed to violence these days as a Christian, if you think that's a, you know, just something that you, you should support as a citizen and as a believer, I think you find yourself in a very, very difficult position today. Cause the more we know about how and why wars are fought, um, it, if, if you're looking to say support a just war theology, um, I mean, the burden of proof on you to justify this act of conflict is i i think it's 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 impossible and this is i think one of the interesting things is that when it comes to questions of violence the burden of proof is always put on the pacifist for some reason it's always put on the person who wants to practice nonviolence as if because they, they always seem to be the exception so they should have to they they seem to be saying something exceptional so they should have to present exceptional evidence for their position but i believe exactly the opposite is true you know, if you want to talk about a plain reading of the text, Jesus says, you know, love your, your neighbor as yourself to do good to those who hurt you. Um, you know, uh, love your enemies. You know, it was said to you an eye for an eye, but I say to you, I mean, there's not many things that people agree that Jesus was very explicit about, but these are the things that most people agree. And so I would say the burden of proof is on somebody who wants to contravene those very clear sayings of Jesus. Um that they have an incredible burden of proof. And, and I think that in today's modern context, very hard to meet that proof, um, especially considering wars are carried out not by theocracies in general, but by secular states who have interests that are very often diametrically opposed to the interests of the church, for example. So um, I think, you know, that's why I want to make this film in a sense. You know, somebody, I just read a review of the film today by Andrew Clager, who said that the film is trying to help Christians overcome their amnesia that we forget, <laughs> you know, we forget where we came from. We're so beholden to this current context that we forget, for instance, that the first few hundred years of the church's existence, rather than being, rather than baptizing the violence of the state, the church was the, one of the primary targets of state violence. 
And so, you know, to become a soldier or something like that was an anathema because that would be siding with, um, you know, uh, an idol-worshipping military um, and, and that sort of thing. So, anyway, I, I think that, like I said, the burden of proof is so often put on the pacifist or the person who's practicing nonviolence, but I think that's exactly backwards. That's an interesting way to look at it. And I think a lot of people take the Old Testament stories of God saying wipe out whole people groups and and make those uh, a part of our belief system and in, in partnering with this. And uh, it was quite a, an awakening to me when I learned there were people that didn't believe that. And, and history is written by the winners of war. And every winner of war then writes the history to say God was on our side and God told us to go. And and uh, Bob Dylan even did a song back in the 60s called God on Our Side and how every everybody in a war believes God is is on their side. And I think being a good uh, American kid growing up, you know, we knew our ability to to win that war against Britain was why we were free and and uh, and our ability to beat Hitler was why the world was free and and I think we just came to this assumption that any time we go to war, it's God endorsed. And and I think you can make that argument about World War II, but I'm not sure you can make that argument about any war that's happened since. I don't think you can even make it about World War II. Yeah, okay. The moment World War II was over, what did we enter? World War III. People think about World War III as something that's going to happen in the future. Well, no, we've, we're still in it. We're in a Cold War hmm. with with Russia. I mean, and um, so what did World War II solve? Um, it, 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 it definitely brought to an end, uh, you know, the Holocaust and, you know, everything that Hitler was up to, but it just opened the door. I mean, Hitler is the guy who gets, uh, you know, all the press as one of the worst guys in history, but Stalin killed way more people than Hitler. Yeah. And what did the world do about it? Nothing. Um, it basically stood by and watched it happen. And, uh, so I, you know, I think that we all convince ourselves Again, this is—I think that it's a classic case of scapegoating. We convince ourselves that we're the good guys. Mm. We forget. Oh, we firebombed Dresden. Uh, you know, basically turned it into you know, read Slaughterhouse Five, and uh, Kurt Vonnegut will tell you what that was like. He was there. Um, or what? What? Do, what did we do to Japan? I mean, we we want to think that we occupied the moral high ground, but we didn't. And it's not to say that we're on some kind of a moral equivalence with Hitler, but. Um, we did, you know, as I always come back to Martin Luther King Jr. He says, you know, violence, he's, he's not he, in his uh, uh, Nobel, uh, one of his Nobel Prize uh, speeches. He says, you know, I'm not unmindful that violence has brought an end, has brought a temporary reprieve to some groups, but it can never offer a permanent solution to a problem. It only can create new and more complicated versions of the problem. And I think that's what we see coming out of World War II we go into a new and more complicated version, which we're still stuck in. And, you know, same thing. We take out Al-Qaeda. What do we get next? We get ISIS. I mean, we didn't solve any problem because, you know, the violence, it dehumanizes us and it completely emasculates the people we use it against. It doesn't, it doesn't convert them to our way of looking at the world. It, it builds a deep resentment. And our violence itself then becomes the model for how to channel that resentment mm -hmm. into something bigger and better. So we get involved in the, this game of one-upmanship. We're all trying to shock and awe each other to death. And, uh, you know, for us, shock and awe is going in and just like blasting, you know, Baghdad to rubble. Whereas for uh, ISIS, shock and awe is having a guy on his knees in a desert in an orange jumpsuit and slitting his throat in front of a video camera. 
that's absolute horror for us. And, you know, it, it triggers this, this, uh, this fear response. So, um, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, like you talked about with God on our side. In fact, I worked on a documentary called with God on our side that looked at the whole, uh, uh, Christian Zionism and, and, uh, the situation with the Palestinians. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's the thing that we constantly tell ourselves. Our violence is good. It's their violence is bad, but you know, you, in order to overcome the monster, we often have to become like the monster. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the price you pay for violence. And uh, I'm unwilling to pay it. Hi, everybody. Thanks for allowing me to interrupt this conversation. This is Paul with a question for you. Have you ever wondered what Jesus would say about the religious right? Were he on earth with us today? Well, now you don't have to wonder anymore. You can read the book. It's called Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong. It's a novel that I've published, and I'm so proud of it, and I want you to read it. It's my imagination of what an incarnate Jesus would say about the religious politics of the church today. Spoiler alert. He didn't like the church's religious politics very much in the first century, and I think his conversations would be pretty much the same today, and the response of the church to him would be very similar to what they did. As well, but you got to read the novel to get the full feel of what that is. A, a man named Saul, a megachurch pastor, is the leader of the evangelical right in his town. And when this mysterious man shows up and begins to question things, it starts to get a little bit ugly, and it comes to a head. And well, you got to read the book. It's called Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong. If you go to my website, npepodcast.com, that's nonpartisan evangelical, NPE podcast.com. Click on the Joseph novel button at the top of the screen. You'll be able to see recommendations for the book, who likes it. Some big names will tell you some good things about it. And you can order it. You can order the paperback off of Amazon. You can order the Kindle edition. Or now you can get the audiobook series edition on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Patreon page. Now there's a cost to that, but uh, there's a cost to the book itself. But you can hear the religious right go religiously wrong by joining the NPE Patreon community, get exclusive commentaries with the book, and a whole lot more. I hope you really enjoy it, and you'll check it out. What would Jesus say about the religious right were he incarnate with us today? Read the book and find out. It's Joseph Comes to Town When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong. You can check it out on our website at npepodcast.com. Now back to Kevin Miller on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. talking to Kevin Miller uh, from Jesus USA Film. He's the writer, director, camera operator, editor, all of the above, producer of that, uh, a filmmaker that's also made uh, movies called Hellbound and uh, and a movie about homelessness called, uh, no, I can't read my own writing there, The Chicken Manure Incident, right? That's uh, right. So that's good stuff. I, I think what you're saying if, is, is pertinent and probably is tweaking the hearts of some people listening but I, th- I think why it's so important, though, is it, I did I watched a documentary about the killing of Osama bin Laden, and and I remember when Osama bin Laden was killed, and people ran in the streets and they were chanting USA, and I thought, okay, maybe God could justify the killing of a man that had 
done all these other things, but I don't think God would be dancing in the street about a, a creation being killed. And, and, and the thing about war now for America is, you know, we've been at war every day since 9-11, you know, 2001, basically. And, and it doesn't cost me anything. It doesn't cost me a thing. In fact, we just we just run up big deficits to keep it going, and 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 now we can even drone strike people, so we don't even have to lose that many soldiers. and And it's become so antiseptic. But it but like you say, it solves nothing. And and in that documentary, there was a CIA agent I remember who said, every time we blow something up in the Middle East, another one hundred families give their children over to the terrorists. Because we've now proven to be exactly what they say that we are, that we're monsters that want to wipe them out. And, and so you're right, it's, it's so the opposite of, of what we're supposed to be. And, and Jesus' uh, a, a demonstration that serving and dying for people is where transformation comes. So it, it does worry me about where that American mentality is now. Well, and I think you know what Jesus is constantly calling us to do is is to <clears throat> is to uh, depart from the script. So our enemies write a script for us. When they bring violence against us, they they script a response. And when you don't play to the script, it completely messes up the whole thing. You know, so Jesus, you know, a simple thing when he tells people if somebody strikes you on one cheek, give them the other. You know, turn the cheek, mm-hmm. turn the other cheek. We all know about that, but a lot of people don't know that you know, within a, a Near Eastern or Middle Eastern culture at the time, you know, you ate with your right hand and you did other things with your left hand that you wouldn't want to use it for anything else. <laughs> and so by turning your other cheek, you're forcing uh, the person who's bringing violence against you to use their unclean hand, which would be a shameful thing even for them to do. So you're forcing them to look at themselves. They have to they have to stop in the midst of their violence and consider, is this really what they want to do? And they're forced to confront themselves in the midst of things. And the other thing is, by not by not striking back, you also mess with their conception of you. If they slap you and you turn around and try and punch them or escalate the violence, they now feel completely justified for hitting you in the first place. But if you turn the other cheek and you invite them to you know, bring more violence against you, it totally messes with their head. It's like, wait a second, I kind of feel like an idiot now. This person's not even fighting back. Like geez, you know, maybe I'm overreacting. And so once again, you're, you're messing with the script and, and you're breaking that, that cycle, you know, and, and yeah, think about, uh, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, write about America's response to 9-11. I mean, 9-11 was a horrific thing that happened. But, uh, you know, the response is almost two decades of unrelenting violence. I mean, if ever America wanted to prove that it was the great Satan, it's it's had 20 years to do that. I mean, um, and I think many times people want to pat themselves on the back for the good things that America does to go and kind of rebuild the countries that it, it turns into rubble. But I mean, um, it's it's kind of hard to really accept that. It's it's like going and infecting everybody with a bunch of diseases and then coming along with a cure. It's like, well, it's hard to look at you as the good guy. Um, and and again, it's not to say that there's not real violence in the world that there's not real evil happening and that to stand by and do nothing is an evil in itself. But there's ways to deal with evil that don't involve standing by and doing nothing. I mean, let's go back to World War II. I would say that to a man, every member of Hitler's army, if you ask them what their faith position was, they would have said they were a Christian. 
what if every Christian in Germany had said, no, we're not going along with whatever it is you want to do? Mm. How does he get an army then? How does he do anything? You know, uh, if Christians would just be faithful to, I mean, there's so many Christians in the world. If Christians would just stop being links in the chain of violence, there's a lot of violence that would stop immediately. And if they didn't just stop being links in the chain, if we started to actually do for our enemies what we're called to do, I mean, uh, our enemies aren't robots. Our enemies are human beings. And um, our enemies can change. They can depart from their violence. They can depart from their resentment. But violence is not the tool to do that. All violence can do is wipe people out and demoralize them and impoverish them. It never can change them. You know, it can never, you know, uh, save <clears throat> save them from you know this this hatred and all this kind of stuff but actually practicing love in the world can transform i mean uh we've all been transformed by love in some capacity none of us have been converted through violence to anything except you know having to go and get counseling <laughs> and to deal with it for the rest of our lives you know i was bullied in high school i still wrestle with that mm-hmm. you know i tried to use violence to deal with the problem you know what it did every single time it escalated the problem yeah. and made it worse every single time. And so, yeah, I just, uh, I, so I guess I come back to Martin Luther King Jr. Again, um, you know, he says violence is impractical because it, it, it only creates new and more complicated problems, but it's also immoral because ultimately it dehumanizes us and it completely dehumanizes the victims of violence as well. It, it just, it never leads to a good place. Yeah, and and one of your guests in the film uses the the passage of Jesus telling the the to go out telling his followers go out and get a sword, and but you know and so I hear that one from people a lot and, and but they miss that then when Peter used that sword to cut off uh, a, a soldier's ear or a young man's ear, Jesus says, "Hey, stop that! You know, you do that again and you're going to die. And and we've got other things for you to do than just die here." And then heals the guys. Ear, so I was, you know, I say the Hatfields and McCoys. The only way that thing ends is one side decides not to get revenge on the other side for the violence that has occurred, and I think that's a that's a Christian premise that Jesus tried to teach us, just as you're saying. Or the other side gets completely wiped out. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but then, you know, uh, but then what happens? You know, uh, uh, who wants to live near the Hatfields or McCoys at that point because they've just committed genocide? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that that's something that's brought up in the film is, you know, Jesus telling his uh, disciples, to, you know, to sell your cloak and buy a sword. And uh, there's another incident where Jesus says, you know, I came, uh, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. Um, and so people will often build uh, theologies on those two verses that use, you know, they use it to justify violence. Um, but again, I think that uh, these are exceptions rather than the rule in terms of Jesus' teachings. So you have to actually set aside the majority of Jesus' teachings to build a doctrine of violence on those two passages. Um, and so I think that you're always in very dangerous ter- territory when you're trying to use an exception to build a theological system. We see the same thing happen with, you know, different views on hell, for example. People will take, you know, Revelation 20, 10, verse 10 to 13, and use that to build their whole theology of hell, never mind the fact that Revelation is, you know, last book to be added to the canon, it's not read in the liturgy of any of the major branches of the church, all that sort of thing. You're on shaky ground when you're using the exception. Um, 
so uh, yeah, and I think you know, like to take one of those passages when Jesus says, "I don't, I don't come to bring peace; I come to bring a sword." I think that you know what he's talking about. And again, I come at this from a perspective of Rene Girard. Rene Girard would say that um, you know, religion by and large is a violence reduction mechanism. So, primal religion, as we talk about in JES USA, um, it really grows up around this idea of. Um, you know, uh, how do we solve uh, violence within our community? Because we tend to imitate each other, that imitation of each other leads to resentment, and we can very quickly find ourselves in a war of all against all. So how do we sort that out? We find a scapegoat, Some, someone who's vulnerable within the community or maybe outside the community. We, we point the finger at them as maybe they're the ones who are the source of our problem. We form uh, a circle around them and we find unity through identification and elimination of a victim. And that eventually morphs into religion because it's almost like this killing of the victim magically brings peace to the community. And we start to think, Oh, that victim actually was a messenger from God. And so now we build rituals around that and we reenact the sacrifice mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. And so, um, and, and so we find, we find a way to put the brakes on our violence, but here's the problem. When Jesus comes along, he brings an awareness of that. Scapegoating only works if we're unconscious that we're doing it. Because once we become aware of what we're actually doing, we realize the horror of our violence. And, and, and it's no longer effective to bring peace to the community. Well, this is exactly the awareness that the gospel brings to us. When Jesus ends up on the cross, he is, <clears throat> he is not there to satisfy some kind of divine wrath. He's, in a sense, revealing the, the truth about our victimage. And so... Um, in a sense, he's removing the brakes from our violence. So when he says he comes not to bring peace, but to bring a sword, he's recognizing that by exposing our violent mechanisms um, with the brakes off, this is going to be a free-for-all. Unless unless we understand the message he's come to give us is that the way forward is through forgiveness, through self-sacrifice. We are no longer going to be a people who sacrifice others to find peace. We're going to be a people who sacrifice ourselves because if we don't, we are going to all die. Um, but if we are willing to lay down our lives, not just for our friends, but for our enemies, um, just as the centurion was converted at the moment that Jesus died, you know, he's a representative of the very state that put him up on the cross. Mm. Our enemies can be converted too through our own sacrifice. But do we actually believe that? I think that's the real challenge is, is that do we, and are we willing to take that risk? Because um, if we are beholden to the fear of death, no, why would we? Um, right. It's only if we believe in the resurrection of some kind, like otherwise, why would you risk it? Um, but I think that's, you know, <clears throat> again, this gets back to what is the gospel. This is why you can't just study these things in a vacuum. You know, what is the gospel? What is the good news? Well, I think many people, especially from an evangelical tradition where I, I come from, the good news is you're not going to go to hell because Jesus paid the price for your sins. He satisfied God's wrath. That's the good news. And I think it's completely different. I think the good news is uh, death has been defeated. Uh, Hebrews 2, 24, 25 says the reason why the Son of Man took on flesh and blood was to free those who all their lives have been slaves to the fear of death. Fear of death is the cause of sin. Because uh, fear of death makes us self-centered. It puts us in survival mode. We can't risk sacrificing for the others because we have to protect ourselves. We have to protect the group. So Jesus comes and defeats death and defeats and frees us from the fear of death. And suddenly, 
a new life opens up, a new way of organizing ourselves where fear is not the foundation of society. Therefore, violence no longer needs to be the foundation of society. And the other thing is, when a tyrant tries to bring violence against us, who cares? You know, because that's the tyrant's number one tool. And so um, when you're freed from the fear of death, then you, you can do things that other people who are still stuck in that fear can't. And this is the challenge, I think, every day. Because we're all, I mean, I'm on a plane at 36,000 feet. And we're in turbulence. I'm praying that God holds that plane up in the air. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to die. I don't want to just throw my life away. <clears throat> but I also don't want to live in a way that's fearful and shrink back from, you know, from things. I want to be bold and and um, and I want to be bold in who I love and I want to be bold in whose cause I champion. And and that takes, you know, you can face death in ways that aren't just physical. Um, yeah. If you stand beside a scapegoat, it doesn't matter if that's scapegoat's guilty or not the scapegoat is never as guilty as we make the scapegoat out to be you know when harvey weinstein who we feature in the film um you know gets cast out of hollywood hollywood thinks they've you know people like harvey and kevin spacey and all these people people in hollywood act as if they've solved the problem of sexual violence in hollywood they haven't because they've never confronted the fact that you can't have harvey surviving for decades in the industry doing what he was doing without an army of enablers without an army of people who stood to benefit from their relationship with Harvey. So they kept their mouth shut. Hmm. You know, it takes a community to raise a pedophile, to raise a sexual predator. And so, you know, we fool ourselves into thinking um, that we can, you know, get rid of these people and we solve the problem. And at the same time, Harvey is a human being and that um, he's a, he's, you know, a a husband, he's a father, um, he's a son, he's a brother. And, and he's done some horrible things, but that doesn't mean we discard him onto the scrap heap of history, you know. And yet, to say that, to stand beside someone like Harvey and say, you know what, I believe even you can be redeemed, that's risky. Yeah. Um, there's a high social cost to that. But again, I think that, you know, if Christians aren't standing beside people like Harvey Weinstein in his darkest moments, who's going to? Yeah, well, I, I, that is a really big thing. And we've got to be willing to lose reputation as well as lose our life. Uh, in this to to stand where Jesus was. And I think you're right. I think we've got this idea that God sort of endorsed this crucifixion as a way to fulfill this plan. And and uh, definitely, I, I, I've had that turned in my vision a little bit to see, to see God saying, I'll tell you what, I'll submit myself to the most heinous act of, of humanity, of this horrifying execution, and uh, submit to that so I can show you a mirror of how terrible things can be and how there are things worse than death uh, and and, and we'll we'll redeem the world through that. So I think that's a, a great point. Let me play one more clip here. You did bring a little bit of the civil rights into this and I think this also plays to the idea that somehow being a peacemaker is to be not as brave as the guy that's willing to carry the AR-15. So let me uh, play this one. Nonviolence is actually how the world works. Anytime you're not acting violently, you're acting non-violently, and most of us are not acting violently most of the time. And so when the world works, it's because of that. And I don't think the onus is on me to prove it. I just think, look outside your window. Think about the civil rights movement, the non-violent direct actions that took place, and people literally being spat on, and a water hose down, and beat 
but the nonviolence that actually helped to change policy. I mean, they were standing for, standing against injustice in such a powerful way, extending that compassion. Many people were hurt, many people died, but that's literally what helped to change our society in America and is continuing to help bring about change. So yeah, it's not, uh, it is a brave act to stand against uh, a culture and a government and say, I'm gonna stand with the marginalized. Yeah, well, I mean, Martin Luther King, <clears throat> you know, uh, didn't last long. I mean, even I think somebody like JFK, I mean, uh, if you look at, um, you know, he's was in the process of turning away from, you know, he was about to reduce America's involvement in Vietnam in a very big way. I mean, there were so many people during that era who just one after another had their voices silenced <clears throat> um, because they dared to question you know, the industrial military or the industrial religious complex, you know, as somebody called, some people call it. <sighs> yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah. Talk about African-Americans in America. I mean, they have skin in the game in terms of, um, you know, and, and what, in terms of trying to nonviolently transform the society and many people, you know, uh, paid the ultimate price for, for that. But I think that we're still reaping the benefits of, of their bravery, many of them motivated by faith, not all of them, but many of them motivated by a Christian faith to do what they did. And so I think we owe a huge debt to, uh, to uh, these types of people, you know, who are willing to put their lives on the line, not just African-Americans. There was a lot of, you know, Caucasians and all kinds of people who stood with them. And, and it was, a, I mean, I can't imagine a, a worse way to torpedo your career, to torpedo your, your uh, friendships and everything, you know, for a Caucasian person to stand alongside, these black civil rights protesters in the sixties, that's, I mean, you know, you're paying a heavy price. So I, I think it's, uh, you know, an incredible thing. Um, uh, yeah. And I was going to mention too, uh, we heard at the beginning of that clip, uh, Gareth Higgins, he's got this great Irish accent, which makes him so fun to listen to. But, you know, when he said that, uh, you know, nonviolence is the way the world works, just look out your window, you know, whenever we're not acting violently, we're behaving nonviolently and that's how we act most of the time. You know, if I go across the street to my neighbor who I'm ticked at because of something he's done and I punch him in the face, you know, I'm seen as a, as uh, a complete loser of an individual, a complete failure at being able to communicate. But for some reason, when my country goes next door and does that to another country, that's called, you know, an appropriate act of war to deal with a problem. Like I think that what we really need to come to see is that violence is always a failure it's always an admission of failure or maybe it's an admission of impatience. Um, but it's never, it's never a good thing in a personal relationship. When a husband brings violence against his wife, he can never justify that. It's never a good thing. It's always a failure of character. So again, at what level, how many people do we have to get together in a room before them using violence now being is seen as a good thing and not a failure. Where's that magical number? I don't know what it is because I mean, uh, it, it just doesn't seem, it seems to me that if it's wrong at one level, it's wrong at every level. Yeah. Um, yeah. Don't, we, don't we tell our kids that, you know, violence yeah. never accomplishes anything. Yeah. Until you, yeah. Until you can drive a <laughs> tank and then it can accomplish some things. So wait till you're old enough to get your tank license. Well, you certainly <laughs> have, uh, have spurred a, a lot of thoughts in, in me today and we could go on for a long time with it. J E S U S a film is the movie. 
Uh, it's JESUSAFilm.com, and people can watch it online uh, by by buying it through Vimeo, right? That's right. Well, unfortunately, uh, we kind of got sidelined by the pandemic. We were supposed to be releasing on Amazon, Google Play, iTunes, and all that, but we will be. Uh, it just will be probably toward the summer. So right now, yeah, you can watch the film on Vimeo. Best way to find us is JESUSAFilm.com. You touched on this just a little bit, but let's finish with this. Like, what what do you what do you want the response of people to be? What what is your hope uh, for for Christians, maybe in particular, that that their response be when they watch the film? Well, I kind of hope that there'll be sort of that uh, breaking free from amnesia, amnesia. So I want Christians to reconnect with their past, specifically with the peacemaking tradition in in their past. And I hope that the film will kind of deconstruct some of our, you know, this kind of common sense that we have around violence, because I think violence kind of gives us, it often just seems like the common sense thing to do, um, because we think it gives us the most control over a situation. But I think it actually does exactly the opposite. Um, And so I want people and also so I hope people's sort of common sense thinking around this is is deconstructed and in that we're really forced to confront the ways that we are complicit in violence, Um, either, you know, even on social networks, uh, but also just in our countries, in our churches and that sort of thing. And what can we do to extricate ourselves from that and go from being sort of passively complicit to actually being actively involved in efforts to. Um, solve problems of violence in our communities, um, in our families, and then, you know, in a broader national and and international level, because there's lots of opportunities. Um, And, uh, you know, so I hope it will kind of mobilize people. I really looked at this film as, you know, there's going to be people who are so committed down a certain road. I don't think there's much hope of a film like this convincing them to change, but I think there's a lot of people who need permission to think differently about these issues. And I hope this film will give them that permission. Yeah. Well, you've, you've hit on exactly the, the, one of the major missions of this podcast is Romans 12, two tells us, you know, to be, be transformed on an ongoing basis by a renewing of our mind, not to be sucked in by the age and conform to the age that we're in. And so I think your film is, is a great tool just, just to ask people to think just for a second, is there another way to believe is there another way to see Jesus in this and and I think it's always really powerful to see there are other people that love God who think differently than me mm-hmm. um, and so that's why I just applaud what you've done I think it's a re- every every tool we can use to get Christians to think maybe I've missed it just a little bit those those God following people in the first century missed the Messiah standing right in front of them because of their nationalistic militaristic belief system or their their need to overthrow government and and maybe there's a chance we're a little off in what we're thinking today so bravo to you and thank you for bringing that tool to us well thank you and i think your point is so good that 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 revelation of wow there's christians who love god who think differently from me how could that be possible yeah you know because we tend to vilify the people and they we think they're maybe less than christian than us and that's why they think that way and uh yeah, I think that that's such an important thing to try and remember is that, you know, it's possible to love God and believe completely different things. So let's talk about that because, you know, we have more in common than we think, and we don't have to make an enemy of those who disagree with us. The people who disagree with us the most, I think, often have the most to teach us if we're willing to listen. And I think that, you know, that's the first way to practice nonviolence is, is in dialogue is, is how can we engage without dehumanizing, you know, our conversation partners. 
All right, J-E-S-U-S-A, film.com. That's the website. I encourage everybody to go check it out and watch it. Don't turn it off 13 minutes in. (laughs) (laughs) And don't turn it off 13 minutes after that. Uh, Let all of it sink in and think about it. So Kevin Miller, thanks for being with us today and take care up there in BC. All right, thank you. Paul, thanks for listening to the podcast today. Go to my website, npepodcast.com. There's some amazing discussions there. I've got a new blog coming out about a different way to look at the abortion battle that I think every Christian needs to read and consider. And of course, would you be willing to go buy my book, Joseph Comes to Town, the novel, When the Religious Right Goes Religiously Wrong, or listen to the audiobook series on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Patreon page. What would Jesus say about the religious right? Get the book. Find out at npepodcast.com, the nonpartisan evangelical podcast. Click the Joseph the Novel button at the top to buy paperback or Kindle editions, or click the Patreon button to join our Patreon community and get the audio book series with exclusive content, uh, commentaries, and a whole lot more. Check out the website. All my blogs and podcasts are there to challenge mindsets and encourage people to think that we can look different as a church in the world today. NPEpodcast.com is the website. I look forward to seeing you there. Have a great time, everybody. Be blessed, be well, and we'll see you again next time on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at NPEpodcast.com. <laughs>